Welcome to the OIS Podcast. Today, Dr. Feras Rehal sits down with Dr. Raj Agrawal, VP of Clinical Development for Resolute Bio and CEO of Retina Global. Through leading development of a small molecule drug for diabetic macular edema and by leading an organization that brings retina care to underserved regions worldwide, Dr. Agrawal is making a huge impact on retina disease. And that's just the beginning. Firas, take it away. Welcome. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again for the OIS Retina podcast. Again, this is Faras Rahal. I'm a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates here in Los Angeles and also a partner of Excite Ventures centered in New York City. I'm delighted today to have my friend as a guest, Dr. Raj Agarwal. We're going to hear a lot from him today about two different organizations, others too, but two that he's currently involved with at a high level. Uh, I've worked with Raj in one of those organizations. We'll hear more about that. It's an amazing philanthropic organization. His current titles are CEO and President of Retina Global. That's the philanthropic organization I was referring to. And Vice President of Clinical Development and Ophthalmology Lead at Resolute Incorporated. Welcome, Raj. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for us, uh, for for this opportunity and also to OIS community for having uh, me uh, on, on this podcast. Thank you. Great. We're really thrilled you joined us and took the time. And I know you're doing a lot of amazing things. I wanted to just start with a little bit of your previous history. I'll mention a couple of things and then give it over to you to give us some of your background, et cetera. Uh, I know you've been in a number of countries. You've got a very worldly background. I knew of some of it from our conversations, but I had a chance to read about some of it too through your bio and LinkedIn and so forth. Uh, tell us about the professional history dating back to your clinical training. Where was the training? How did you get started? That sort of thing. Uh, so thanks for asking that question. My career has taken me through a couple of countries. Uh, I actually started off my initial medical school uh, in India. Uh, I went through residency and uh, fellowship training in Retina as well. And I also worked uh, for about seven to eight years uh, in an institution in uh, India itself. Uh, the name of the institution is Shankar Netralang. Uh, which was uh, which is still a premier uh, ophthalmology institute in India and in South Asia. I was, uh, like I said, I worked there for a good number of years. Uh, you know, as part of that, I was obviously seeing patients, but also uh, training fellows. And some of those fellows now are spread all over the world, which is which is great to know. Yeah. Um, after that, I actually went to work in Hong Kong for a bit. Uh, again, this was uh, you know based on the fact that Hong Kong public health system did not have many retina specialists. So they wanted help in terms of, you know, training people. So that was a good opportunity for me to go and work with the public health system in uh, Hong Kong, uh, in the Chinese University of Hong Kong, but also in other hospitals uh, around the city of Hong Kong. So I actually used to travel to five different hospitals through the week, uh, working with different uh, trainee doctors uh, who were pretty much ophthalmology residents, uh, trained doctors, but they wanted to become a retina specialist and work with them in both in the clinics and in operating rooms to try and train them to become retina specialists. Again, some of these guys that have trained, they are now senior retina specialists, uh, and, and uh, you know some of them are leading uh, ophthalmologists in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere. One interesting fact about that is the person I worked with as a chair of the department there is Dr. Dennis Lam. Uh, you may have heard of him. Uh, in fact, one of the interesting propositions about him being mentioned is 
I think he's the richest ophthalmologist in the world at this time. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's yeah, a great so, characteristic to have and <laughs> for a good reason. I, I should have continued to work with him. <laughs> but uh, I, I think he started a few hospitals in China and elsewhere. And I think that went IPO. Uh, and so that's how I think, uh, you know, he, he got this designation of being the richest ophthalmologist in the world. But it was great working with him. Uh, you know, he's been, uh, you know, very... Uh, advanced in terms of thinking. He's written multitude of articles. He's been up there in, in terms of, you know, trying to take the field forwards. So I learned a lot from him uh, while I worked with him and the rest of the group. After Hong Kong, I actually was heading towards USC in Los Angeles to join them. And this was, uh, you know, as part of the team that had moved from Johns Hopkins, uh, Gene Duan, Mark Humayun, Wasara, when they moved from Johns Hopkins to USC. Uh, my I had kind of worked with them earlier at Johns Hopkins. And so when they moved to USC, they asked me whether I would like to join. And so, you know, having traveled to different places, I thought, why not? So I, I came to uh, and the USC. But what happened during that time was uh, we were waiting for a grant application from National Science Foundation, which was going to take care of part of my salary. Uh, so there was a little bit of time that during which Reese Landers, uh, you know, the the professor at North Carolina, he is a mentor to me. He actually reached out to me and asked me whether I would go train an ophthalmologist uh, in the Bahamas. And so I said, okay, I have a time of one year to go. And so I, I actually landed up in the Bahamas. Uh, I was working with this uh, gentleman who had actually trained in Retina in the 1970s, and he wanted to refresh himself. But then also as part of my commitment to, to the country, I was also working in the hospital. I started seeing patients at the public health hospital, uh, as well as in, in the private sector. Uh, and uh, so I spent a year and a half in the Bahamas. And uh, one of the one of the unique uh, things that I keep telling about my experience in the Bahamas, I mean, Bahamas was a, a great place to work in and all that. But one particular time, I actually saw Sean Connery, um, <laughs> who came <laughs> for a routine eye examination. So it was one of my highlights of, uh, of my awesome. work in the Bahamas. <laughs> Very you nice, uh, you know, great you guy. Uh, you, you must know, have all asked some James Bond questions. I mean, right, right. it would be too enticing to have a conversation <laughs> while a dilated exam right. with an indirect ophthalmoscope to tell you some James Bond secrets. Right. I mean, he, he, he was great. We did talk a little bit about that, but very nice, very down to earth, uh, you know, and a great guy. Uh, I mean, no airs about him. So that was great. But then I finally landed up at USC uh, in Los Angeles. And one of the aspects of my uh role of work was, apart from doing clinical work and research, was to focus on the Argus II development. And uh, as you know, Argus I was developed primarily at uh, Johns Hopkins. But when the team moved to USC uh, and when I joined them, we started looking at how do we make the Argus I into a better product. You know, as you remember from Argus I days, uh, the Argus I required a neurosurgeon and an ENT surgeon along with uh, a retina surgeon to come and work together. Some of the surgeries would take about eight, nine hours. Uh, and so we decided to work on a new prototype for it so that it can, it can be operated on by a retina surgeon so we can, we can try and reduce the surgery time and be able to improve uh, the outcomes of, uh, you know, of patients with retinitis pigmentosa. So that was my part, uh, uh, one of my uh, roles that I played. Worked with Mark. We actually got a patent on that. So Mark and I are co-patent holders on that. And uh, we, uh, we, you know, as you know now, uh, Argus II was uh, developed and we, we did uh, clinical studies in different, uh, different cities in the U.S., also in Europe, and finally got it approved. So it's been a, a journey for me uh, from in four different countries, so to speak. 
but also along the way, I've worked in various other countries in South America and in Africa as well. So, you know, have kind of gotten to know of the first world and maybe the third world, if I may use that term, in terms of how uh, eye care is provided to patients. Within ophthalmology, to call you wor- worldly would be an understatement. That is incredible. Uh, I'm glad you brought up USC and went over that. That was one of the things I wanted to ask about. Just real quick, before we move on to another topic, did you do clinical care there at all? Or was this strictly research? And did you te- teach fellows and residents during your Doheny time? Right. So uh, you mentioned Doheny, which is an interesting thing that we should know of. So Doheny those days belonged to USC, so to speak. Right, right. <laughs> so when I, joined, when I joined, we used to work at USC, at Doheny, as well as the uh, uh, LA County Hospital. And I came in, uh, in order to work on the clinical side, as well as research and teaching. So I, I would do all three. Um, and uh, I was seeing patients uh, both uh, at, at Doheny slash USC, as well as at uh, LA County Hospitals, along with doing research and, and uh, training fellows and residents. Thank you. Obviously, your career moved into industry at some point, and we're going to explore that. What, what You had a brief stint at Santin. Maybe that was the initiation of your move into industry. I don't know. What can you share with us? What was that position? And was that your entree into industry in ophthalmology, essentially? Uh, actually, I would, I would take a step back in that. Uh, you know, when I was working on the Argus II, I was working very closely with Second Sight Medical Products, which was a company that was developing the Argus II on a commercial side of things. So I was, that was like my first foray, so to speak, in working in industry very closely. I would actually spend almost a day a week uh, at the second sign offices to try and look at, you know, designing studies, looking at outcomes and all that stuff. So that that's where I worked in a small company, right? The second side was really small those days. So it was a good learning experience. Uh, also along the way at USC, I got a degree in master's degree in regulatory science. Uh, so which helped me in, in terms of designing and development of uh, studies based on the focus of getting them approved. So all that, you know, uh, knowledge, so to speak, about having worked on uh, developing a device uh, ultimately led me to decide that, you know, I've done kind of some amount of work in, in clinical care, seeing patients, you know, training fellows, uh, like I said, I've trained fellows multitude uh, of places. And so I decided, I, I think it might be a good idea to explore working with industry because industry work definitely leads to a huge impetus in terms of how we treat patients now. And so trying to be you know, involved in that, trying to see how we can push the field forwards was something that came to my mind as I started talking to people about it. And that's when, as you said, Santin was my first full-time foray into industry. Um, I worked with Santin uh, as the, the retina lead for them uh, when I joined them. I worked there for a year and a half uh, as a full-time person. And the idea was to try and look at uh, the various assets that the company already had internally but also to try and look outside the company to see if you can bring anything in from outside in terms of in licensing deals and stuff like that. Did you feel earlier in your career, in your training period, you know, when we were all fellows and residents and you went through that, it sounds like, you know, in India, or at least in part, did you have a sense you would end up in industry or did that just happenstance at a later time? Good question. I never thought I would go to industry. <laughs> so I'd always been, you know, a clinical person, uh, you know, into surgery and all that stuff. But then along the way, uh, you know, having, like I said, having seen patients in multitude of places and having seen, I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, in India, the number of patients that you end up seeing in a day is humongous, you know, especially <laughs> at a place like, you know, a tertiary care center, 
where patients come in, not only those days from within from all over places in India, but also from other countries in, in South Asia, also from Africa, and, and even those days from Singapore and Malaysia and Hong Kong, patients would come into India because uh, those days, they, the, they know, for example, the Singapore National Eye Center was not as well developed those days. So a lot of patients would come in. And so I've seen, you know, and, and also an interesting concept about my earlier work was in India, we used to work six days a week, uh, three days of clinic, three days of surgery. So about 100 patients a day, every day, uh, three days a week, and, and, and then about six to seven surgeries every day. And these are, you know, obviously very advanced cases. These are pre-anti-VEGF days, so <laughs> there was no, no VEGF uh, injections to be given to patients. So majority of my time used to be spent in, in, uh, you know, in surgery or in clinics seeing patients. Another interesting observation, that, uh, you know, if I may say so, was my wife was doing a residency. So she was in Bombay and I was in another city called Chennai. So we were away from each other. By about, it would take us an hour to reach you know, from, from Bombay to Chennai. And so I was alone, literally at home, you know, enforced bachelor, if I may say so. And I would just hang out in the operating room or in the, in the hospital majority of the time. And, and also those days, uh, we would admit patients uh, and, and keep the patients in the, because they were traveling from outside uh, to come to Chennai. And so I would go and see patients post-operatively, the first post-op day on Sunday morning, and then go and see my pre-ops Sunday evening, so, like I said, majority of the time was spent in, in, in hospital work. So all that, you know, having worked on all that aspects really made me believe when I started working with the industry, I realized that th that is an avenue that I can work with, provide my expertise and background, so to speak, and work with the team to try and, and see whether we can do something in terms of pushing the field forward. So that's what made me, uh, you know, move into industry. That schedule sounds exhausting. We're here at... Uh... LA retina, as we're called, retina vitreous associates. We're pretty busy and we do a high volume, but that sounds insane and really <laughs> exhausting. Um, let's go to the current since we're onto the industry and we, we know what you're doing now. You're currently vice president of clinical development ophthalmology lead at a company called Resolute with a Z, I believe. Yes. Tell us about uh, Resolute. It appears you guys have multiple products in the pipeline, both ophthalmologic, which is I'm sure where you're, you know, focused on, but also some systemic therapy. Uh, what can you tell us about these main assets or about the company? Sure. So the company actually is really small. Um, you know, we have about 36, 37 people right now. Uh, there are two locations of the company. Uh, one is in the Bay Area, in the Redwood City, which is the main headquarters. And we have another setting up in Bend, Oregon. <clears throat> so these are two different, uh, you know, locations of the company. The company came about, uh, the CEO is Nevin, uh, who started this company, uh, I, I think about 10 years back or so. And uh, the idea was to try and see, uh, to focus on aspects of uh, uh, diseases that have a metabolic focus. So there are currently two products that we have. One is the RZ402, which is the, you know, uh, the aspect that I'm working on, which is the ophthalmology side of things. But the other product is called RZ358, which is a product focused on uh, congenital hyperinsulinism. Uh, and this is, uh, as you know, this is a disease that affects young patients. Uh, they have uh, severe hypoglycemia because of the hyperinsulinism, um, you know, causing uh, problems there. And so majority of these patients don't have a benefit of treatment at this time. So RZ358 has come as an antibody, uh, which focuses on uh, insulin, insulin uh, as, as the uh, focus of attention. 
And what it, uh, what we've done with our phase two study, the results of which were recently uh, discussed and disclosed, where that we have been able to showcase in a significant number of patients that we can actually control the disease to a significant extent. Almost 75% uh, you know, of those patients showed uh, benefit. And so uh, what it basically means is that this product, which is, like I said, focused on uh, hyperinsulinism, is, is going to go into phase three studies next year. And that's, that's an important pathway for the company moving forwards. On the other side, we have this other product, which is RZ402, which is uh, currently focused on diabetic macular edema, and which we can talk some more uh, in terms of where we are uh, at with, with the compound. Yeah, I want to get into that. One quick question about this other condition. It, it sounds like a sort of the inverse of uh, diabetes mellitus. Is this uh, considered an orphan condition? It is. It is an uh, orphan condition, yes. <clears throat> and that's one of the reasons why there's not much of products at this point of time in terms of treating patients. So this is going to be a huge uh, you know, benefit to patients uh, once it gets approved. And hopefully, we do believe that it will get approved in time. So I, I want to I talk about the diabetic retinopathy product. Obviously, we're, this is a retina program, and you and I are both retina doctors. Um, what stage of development is it in? And and let's talk a little bit about the mechanism of action. I'll, I'll sort of preface because I was involved in a trial with another drug at one point um, that involves the calicrine kinin system. Uh, even though I was a clinical trialist for that, I, I'm still not sure I understand that uh, system as well as I should. I, I'm sure that you people at your company do. Uh, tell us about the mechanism of action and the stage of development of this product. Sure. And I think you're referring to, uh, you know, the product that uh, was earlier in a phase two study, which was Calvista yeah. Pharmaceuticals. Correct. And uh, yeah, so, right. So that that study was done about in 20, uh, completed in 2019. The results came out. So basically, uh, the product that we have, RZ402, is, is an oral medication, number one. Number two, it's, it's plasma calicrine inhibition. Uh, that is the focus of attention for the drug. It's a small molecule. And what we are looking at is trying to see, you know, as you know, significant number of patients with DME do not tend to do well either early on or late, um, you know, after antivage of injections, which are obviously the standard of care at this point of time. So some of these patients potentially have, you know, probably do not do well with anti-VEGF. I mean, VEGF potentially has, you know, anti-VEGF does not have a role uh, to play. So there's a different mechanism that, that potentially would be able to help these patients. And that's where a plasma calicrine inhibition comes into play. Uh, what we believe is that plasma calicrine inhibition in its, uh, and we have, have uh, showcased in a lot of animal experiments that uh, plasma calicrine inhibition in uh, DME models, uh, animal models, does show a significant benefit. Almost 80 to 90% of those animals uh, in this study have showcased a benefit of reduction in uh, leakage. And so what we're looking at is trying to see whether we can replicate that into, into a patient with a DME. Currently, uh, RZ402 has just finished uh, the phase one study. So single ascending dose study and a multiple ascending dose study. Uh, again, these, these were in healthy volunteers. Uh, idea was to try and obviously as a phase one study, we were trying to see the safety mechanism of these drug, of this drug. And so we have showcased uh, with our uh, single ascending and multiple ascending dose study that the results are extremely good in terms of safety. This is an exceedingly safe drug to be given to patients. And what we also looked were, uh, you know, obviously pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic aspects as well to try and understand what it does. 
So all those uh, parameters that we've looked at showcases the fact that this drug will definitely have some role, significant role to play in, in a patient with diabetic macular edema. But, but the point is, we have not treated a patient so far with diabetic macular edema with this drug. Uh, that is where the phase 2A study, which is going to start end of this year, comes into play. So what we plan to do is to showcase in a group of patients with DME um, uh, using this oral medication to see whether this uh, drug can have an effect on, on, on their status with regards to uh, OCT as well as vision. Obviously, primarily uh, uh, looking at OCT as a primary endpoint, uh, but also trying to see as a secondary endpoint whether vision might improve in these patients. So... I, I didn't know this. I'm glad you pointed this out. Are you saying the phase one trial was in healthy normals? Yes. Safety trial. How Safety many patients uh, approximately did you study? So we, we treated about seven total of 70 patients out of which, uh, you know, we had uh, cohorts as we went along the dose ranging study. Uh, we, we, we had four different doses, 25 milligrams, 100, 250, and 500. Each of the, these cohorts had 10 subjects in them. Uh, eight subjects were the active, uh, you know, received active dose, uh, whether two were placebo uh, patients. So uh, basically trying to see, you know, the safety aspects, as I mentioned earlier, and majority of the outcomes uh, from this safety study were that, you know, patients did have some uh, minor uh, gastrointestinal um, outcomes like diarrhea or, or nausea and, and things like that, which are obviously considered very commonly seen with patients who take oral medications. But these are all grade one minor uh, AEs. There was no grade two or three uh, AEs in them, and obviously no SAEs as well. And so, in, like I said earlier, this is exceedingly safe drug uh, from the data that we have so far. And obviously, we have to see how it pans out uh, in, in our phase two A study. You know, uh, as a retina doctor, at seeing uh, uh, millions and millions, it seems, of diabetic retinopathy patients. It has always um, interested me and intrigued me the uh, excellent data that we've collected in recent years, initially serendipitously, later by design for treatment of advanced non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, you know, absent with or without DME. And right. I think that's always been of great interest to us as a specialty, but and we've had amazing data come out of the Panorama trial, as you know, with uh, the ILEA product. Yet it has licensure, it's covered, yet very few of us are doing it. And I think this sounds like an incredible role potentially for an oral medication. And I thought this for quite some time. There's some other people, corporate people, obviously interested in this. Uh, what's your take on this for uh, non-DME, advanced non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy? Is that something you're thinking about, will be testing for? Absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that, uh, I mean, we know for sure that this drug potentially has as a pathway beyond DME. So there is likely indication uh, of focus uh, in a non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy patient, as well as potentially even beyond that. But, you know, the point you made is, is very valid. Uh, you know, one of the things we have seen with animal data is that there is some aspect of preventative, uh, you know, potential of this drug. Uh, so there is a way in which this drug could, you know, if it showcases benefit, we might be able to intervene in patients even earlier. So there is not only a, you know, a potential for treatment of patients with adva advanced uh, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, but also with patients with earlier stage disease. And that may affect ultimately where patients go in terms of uh, you know, progress, progression of the disease in time. 
But definitely, uh, you know, this advanced non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy with or without DME is something that is, you know, as you referred to, a lot of patients are coming in now with that stage of the disease. And there, there is need for those patients to get some benefit of treatment. So maybe an oral medication would likely have a significant role to play here. Yeah, it seems uh, given the often asymptomatic mm-hmm. nature of that condition, as late as it is in disease, and we know how soon or easily those eyes can fall off the cliff visually. It hasn't been that acceptable to many uh, yet to inject them with some regular basis. And it makes a lot of sense that a primary physician could even prescribe an oral medication with the help of examinations by us and our, you know, ophthalmologists. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I hope you make great progress there. What do you see, uh, as the advantages of this mechanism of action or approach, say, in comparison with anti-VEGF? Do you see this as um, a potential replacement and adjunct? Do you plan eventually to do head-to-head trials with anti-VEGF without necessarily revealing anything you haven't decided upon yet? But where do you see this positioned, given that we have anti-VEGF and steroids currently in the marketplace down the road? No, that's a great question. I think it's a it's a multi billion dollar question, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's why I asked. You. It's my job. <laughs> yeah. So, see, uh, you know, obviously, we, we don't have enough data at this point of time to uh, kind of say where this drug potentially will land up. Uh, we do know that there is a potential for this drug to, you know, you know, as an earlier intervention, which I mentioned earlier, there is a potential for this drug to, you know, to showcase some benefit in patients even earlier than like you uh, alluded to earlier, in patients where we cannot potentially inject with anti-VEGFs. So that is one aspect of things that we could consider. The other thing we'd consider is, again, based on the data that will come out from phase two and beyond, uh, you know, if there is a potential for a, for a combination therapy, you know, we, majority of the, the development that we have seen in the last couple of uh, years has been um, another injection coming into play you know it's very tough for patients to be told that you know you have to receive another injection so two injections instead of one you know in some of the studies that were done Uh, so that that is another challenging thing for patients so here if there is a pathway for this drug to showcase benefit by itself that'll be the greatest thing to happen but in case there is a potential for it to become a combination therapy so patient gets anti-vegf treatments maybe initially or or as infrequently as possible but the patient can take medications on his or her own time at home on a daily basis, I think. And if that changes the, the outcome of diseases, that will be a great thing to happen as well for the patients. So we don't really know at this time an answer to that multi-billion dollar question. But, uh, you know, hoping that it pans out, obviously, you know, our hope is that it pans out as a uh, you know, standalone drug. But in case there is a potential pathway for it to be a combination therapy, maybe, maybe that's what, uh, you know, we'll end up with that in time. Yeah, I actually, um, and you, I'm sure know this, uh, the, the, uh, food and drug administration, the FDA as of yet doesn't recognize necessarily reduction of numbers or frequency of injection as a, let's call it viable approval. Uh, but I have personally lobbied, uh, Uh, Wiley on a podium in a panel discussion on that very topic, because I think you can make the argument that uh, even if it doesn't make visual acuity better, if you reduce injections, you are improving patient outcomes by definition, because you're reducing complication rates, if nothing else. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I think, uh, you know, as we know, 
FDA doesn't accept uh, anything else apart from visual acuity improvement. Um, but <clears throat> I mean, there are so many different ways in which we can showcase that patients get improved uh, in, in terms of you know, the idea that you suggested. Hopefully they will change in time. <laughs> I think it is evolving and a lot of us are working on that, but I, I do think it's evolving. Uh, let me turn our attention a little bit to the corporation itself. Uh, first, really, you know, what is your current position? I, I mean, I know the title, but what can you tell us about your sort of day-to-day -day activities and also um, about the company? Is it public and when did it go public? And uh, out of interest to some of our viewers, at what stage were these assets when the company decided to go public? There's some, you know, educational quality to that. Right. So the company went public uh, about 10 years back. And uh, so basically these two products, uh, both of them actually came from outside. So we in-licensed these products. Uh, the RZ402, the DME plasma calicrine inhibition product actually came from a company called ActiveSight, uh, which is still functional. And we are closely associated with them, uh, the founders of the company as we move along. The 358 product came from a company named Zoma. And so once these products were you know, considered for in-licensing, that's when I believe that the company was formed. And uh, that's how uh, the company started functioning. And then uh, it went to IPO uh, about 10 years back. Uh, my role in the company is, uh, you know, as a retina specialist, as an ophthalmologist, the only one in the company, uh, my role is primarily focused on trying to, you know, look at 402 and see how do we move the, the program forwards and, and, and see where we can go with uh, in terms of uh, uh, research and development and approval process. Um, basically, uh, talking to, you know, my colleagues like yourself, we keep discussing things in terms of, uh, you know, what, what is the best way to move forwards? What are the, you know, design of the study and all that stuff. We also have a couple of members uh, on the advisory board at this point uh, point of time, um, you know, Kwan from Stanford and uh, Bob Bishitkul from UCSF. Uh, they have been associated with the company uh, since before I joined. I'm looking at, uh, maybe I should make a picture. I'm, I'm looking at expanding the <laughs> advisory board. So uh, hopefully I, I, I will be able to convince you to come on board. But, uh, but the idea is to- try that discussion. Thank you. Uh, so idea is to try and see what's the best way to move forward. So, you know, learning from previous experience of all of us, you know, in terms of drug development, as well as patient outcomes, and, and trying to see how best uh, the route is for us to get this product, uh, you know, into the approval process and, uh, and beyond. And so that's that's my current work. You know, obviously there is a team. Uh, like I said, it's a small team, so everybody brings a lot of hats to the table. Uh, but uh, we do work very closely in uh, in, in trying trying to get things done within the company. <clears throat> One final question on this, uh, so I can give you a chance to tell us where you're at. What in, in that development process? You may have mentioned this already, but you plan a phase two trial. When, if things go appropriately and timely, when do you plan to launch that clinical trial? And are you starting to work on bringing the sites and so forth? Right. So we uh, we are currently discussing uh, and finalizing the study design for the phase two A study. Um, we have uh, the plan for the uh, development process is to start the study end of this year, the fourth quarter of this year. Uh, uh, we hope that we will uh, be coming out with top line results uh, fourth quarter next year, 2023. The idea is uh, to, uh, you know, this is a first time, uh, you know, proof of principle, uh, uh, proof of concept study uh, in DME patients. So, uh, you know, we are looking at a certain number of patients. We are trying to design the study in the best possible way so that we can increase the chances of success in, in terms of outcomes. Uh, 
And the idea is that beyond that, uh, you know, it being a small company, uh, we may, may or may not have the potential to take it all to a phase 2B or a phase 3 study. So we're looking at uh, potential partnerships, either in less out licensing or, or a partnership where we can work with another entity to try and take this program forwards. Uh, that being said, I'm, I'm really gung ho about the, the program. Uh, you know, as you uh, pointed out earlier, you know, having an oral medication for these patients, uh, obviously for DME, uh, maybe for DR, and we also see a potential for patients with macular degeneration. So there is, uh, you know, all these huge, uh, you know, in terms of uh, number of patients and, and uh, the potential for it uh, to, to have an oral drug. Also, this drug has a potential for uh, some of these, uh, you know, small indications, if I may, uh, like vasculitis. Uh, you know, we see a lot of patients come in with vasculitis, like uh, different uh, sarcoidosis-related vasculitis and things of that nature. So there is a potential in, in those areas as well, and we are actually looking at that, that as well as we move forwards. So there are multiple different indications at this time for this program. Yeah, it's great. I, I, I totally agree with all the premises you just laid out, including the, the uveitis, vasculitis angle. I actually love this mechanism of action. I was a fan of that clinical trial that we participated in. I think uh, you're onto something here. And I think, you know, oral makes a lot of sense for some of these conditions. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about your other hat. You wear several, but the two main ones <laughs> I'm talking about today, CEO and president of Retina Global. This is a fascinating entity. A lot of people in our business know about you, know about what you've been doing. I've personally previously worked with you and we ran a clinic together here in Southern California, which was amazing and served a lot of people that day. And I know others who've done it, Charlie Eifrig and some of my other friends here in California. This is a great service to humanity. Tell us about Retina Global. How did it begin? What is it doing now? Uh, how did you come up with this? And, and you know, where did you get funding and things like that? Sure. So Retina Global, actually, the, the concept was, like I said, uh, you know, having worked in different areas around the world, uh, this concept was in my mind in terms of trying to see if, if there is a way for us to, and as you know, there are humongous number of patients out there who do not have access to a retina specialist. I mean, some of these patients don't have access to even basic eye care. But, you know, based on the fact that the number of retinal diseases is increasing, uh, the idea behind Retina Global was to try and, and focus on providing specific retina care to patients who don't get access to it. But just provision of care potentially was not, not going to end, you know, or, or make a dent in, in the way things stood that time or, or even now. And so what we thought was that try and see what's the best way to sustain and make sure that whatever we do will ultimately lead to some impactful change on the ground where we work. And all those discussions actually led to the start of the Retina Global as an organization. Even then, and probably even today, Retina Global is probably the only organization that is exclusively focused on Retina. We don't, we don't focus on anything else. And one of the reasons is, you know, there are a huge number of organizations out there that work on multitude of different indications, including cataract, which still remains one of the biggest challenges we face in, uh, in a visual impairment around the world. But we also wanted to have a different uh, organization that will work because of the increasing number of patients with retinal disease, especially diabetic retinopathy and even macular degeneration to that extent. And so we started this organization in 2012. Uh, we got our uh, IRS approval for a 501c3 in 2013. And we actually had our first foray uh, in, into Burundi, a country in Africa, uh, where 
there was no retina spec. Actually, sub-Saharan Africa, which is a population of 1 billion, uh, did not have a retina specialist. So uh, I actually went, <laughs> went on the first uh, trip to, uh, to Burundi. Uh, very interesting uh, you know, to, to see how things stand. I was working with, with a hospital group. Uh, in, they, they are located about two hours away from the, the capital city. And uh, people were told about my coming uh, as a retina specialist to try and provide care. So they had sent messages out. So actually, people came from the other country, which is Congo next door. People came from there to come in and, and, and get help. Uh, the reason why this kind of hit me that time was there was this, two, and I, I need to talk about this. There was this two-year-old kid uh, with a traumatic cataract and retinal detachment. And I operated on him, you know, with, with a, a portable vitrectomy machine that we used to have those days. And, and we had some, some amount of equipment is available to us uh, to operate on with some silicon oil and all that stuff. So I did surgery on this kid. And uh, two days post-op, I saw the patient. I, you know, he was doing well. Uh, and there was no inflammation. You know, the retina looked good, well-attached. So I told the volunteer, because they speak French there, so I told the volunteer to tell the mother that she can take the kid home and then come back before I leave back for the U.S. And the volunteer told me that this mother has walked 30 miles with the oh. child on the back to come in and see me. And she's going to walk back and come back again the same way because there's no transport for her. And obviously, she's not able to afford that. Uh, that kind of hit me. You know, this is these, these things we don't really understand when we work here. And this is the reason why I keep telling you know, colleagues that we have to get out and work in that, that, that part of the world where things are very challenging. And that also, you know, from a perspective of, of a retina specialist, a surgeon, or, or what have you, the idea is to try and take you outside the comfort zone and, and you know, see diseases that you don't normally see, the, the stage of diseases that you sometimes see. You know, some of these diseases are like you only seen in a textbook, you know, an image uh, in the textbook. You end up seeing them. You actually have to manage them with limited resources. And obviously, uh, you know, that, that's a challenge by itself. But what we also do in Retina Global, in not only in Burundi and other places, has been to try and train people on the ground. And that's where the sustainability part comes in. The idea is to try and intervene to a certain extent for a few years uh, so that uh, somebody would be trained enough as a retina specialist so he or she can then take care of the problems uh, from that point on. That is absolutely incredible story about the woman walking 30 miles. I, that, I've never heard yes. that. And I'm, I'm, I'm moved by it. And what better use of our time and skills could there be than helping these situations? What, that's wonderful. You mentioned Congo. What other, in Sub-Saharan Africa, what other countries <clears throat> have, have you been involved with through Retina Global to this point? So we have worked, we started, like I said, with Burundi. Uh, we have worked in Ethiopia. We worked in, uh, we're currently working in Kenya and Tanzania in, in Africa. And uh, in uh, South America, we have Bolivia and uh, Brazil. Um, in fact, Brazil, we're actually working with uh, a group of retina specialists, uh, focusing on some of the states that have a huge number of diabetic retinopathy patients. So we are screening everybody uh, who has a history of diabetes and treating those patients who require treatment. Uh, for some surprising reason, majority of the patients start with B, Burundi, Bolivia, Brazil, uh, and Belize. Uh, we've also worked in Belize and Haiti uh, in, in Central America. So uh, we've been working in different places. Uh, idea is to try and uh, see that, you know, we, we pick up a place that does, has some potential. So, you know, we need to have a partner organization on the ground. 
uh, maybe an ophthalmologist or an eye clinic that we can work with who can pre-screen patients so that when a retina specialist comes in, uh, they can be seen, you know, they are only seeing retina patients. And we also want to have some basic amenities like a slit lamp, indirect ophthalmoscope, something of that nature. So uh, we can bring in the rest of the equipment. So we started, like I said, with Burundi, but we've been expanding into various other countries since then. And you, you bring a team of people, you ask for volunteer retina doctors to join you, technical staff. Uh, what kind of team do you travel with to do these services? So one of the things we do is we actually don't have a large team of people uh, traveling at one point of time. Usually it's just one or maximum of two people who go down. And the idea is to try and uh, make it a lean operation, so to speak. Idea is that, you know, this person goes down there, everything is taken care of, meaning somebody's at the airport to receive this person and, and be with that person throughout. Uh, uh, and that's one reason, like I said earlier, we do require a, a kind of a either an individual or an entity on the ground who can be the, the partner organization and work with us in terms of pre-screening, in terms of provision of at least some care. And also, you know, when that person has come back, so we usually have people going for a week at a time, uh, see patients, do surgeries, um, provide treatments, and also train. And then when they return, uh, usually there's an intervening time frame about two to three months. During that time, the local uh, ophthalmologists or you know, uh, uh, a group of ophthalmologists that they can take care of, we have trained them to a certain extent so they can see patients, they can do some follow-ups. And if there's any requirement that they can get in touch with us so we can provide some benefit of help uh, via telemedicine, uh, so to speak. What sources of funding, and if not even just the cash component, the monetary, do you have corporate support also for equipment, uh, surgical equipment, examining tools, and or monetary? Uh, what sources are you getting from? Um, it's, it's a good question, a valid question, and I hope people are listening to it and, and uh, get, <laughs> get, get to support and, and work with Retina Global. You know, one of the things we, we have always found challenging is raising money. Running a nonprofit uh, and raising money is I mean, running a non-profit is one thing, but raising money is actually not something that I am very, uh, uh, not a cup of tea of, uh, for me, so to speak. Um, but, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate and uh, we have been fortunate as, a, as an organization to have significant support from industry. Industry has supported us all through. Uh, we also have uh, received donations from individuals, uh, but industry has played a significant role in terms of not only provision of grants, but also in provision of instrumentation um, uh, so that we can provide those instrumentations to people uh, where we work. So, I mean, starting from an indirect ophthalmoscope, going all the way to a vitrectomy machine, we've had, you know, OCTs, uh, laser machines, and, and what have you. I mean, the whole paraphernalia of things that we require in a, in a basic setup retina clinic, we have received all that support, so which is great. So, you know, we have to thank uh, industry for that. That's great. And I, I encourage people to, to reach out with if somebody did want to reach out, how would they reach you? Does Retina Global have a website? Yes, there's, there's a website. Uh, uh, it's called retinaglobal.org. So they can go there or they can reach out to me directly. Uh, it's a simple email, CEO at retinaglobal.org. So they can reach out to me via email as well. That's great. I encourage people. Final question for you personally. I mean, that's a lot of hats. This is pretty time consuming and I know you're you're not a one man show but you're putting a lot of effort into Retina Global it's incredible what you're doing and what you've done are you finding time to be able to fit all this in especially now uh, taking on a full time position with uh, Resolute 
uh, time finding time <laughs> is a constraint for everybody and i'm sure you you face the same kind of situation yeah. uh, in order to find time to to do the work that you need to do uh, but you know i I've, i'm fortunate in a way that i have you know work, i worked with uh, uh, amazing colleagues both uh, in uh, retna global al- along the years but also with resolute uh, where i joined last year uh, they have been very supportive of my uh, my my work and role in retna global and uh, so i mean obviously my major focus right now on a full time basis is resolute so i i provide as much time and and attention uh, to the work that that is involved in taking this product forwards but whatever time i can i can get out of my other daily activities i try to uh, you know fit into retna global work and so you know one of the challenges and you pointed out earlier was about uh, the clinic that we started in uh, orange county you know one of the things that uh, came about uh, when i started talking to people in orange county is that there is no orange county county hospital like what we have in la and so patients who are underserved in orange county they don't have access to care at all uh, they cannot go anywhere unless you know uh, to to get the uh, the requisite care and that kind of led to the start of this orange county i project uh, under retna global's uh, uh, wing and we we have worked with amazing people you referred to charlie afric yourself uh, sean adrian uh, mithul mehta suriyappa and and so many others who have come forwards and have been working on a you know we we do this clinic uh, now twice twice a month and uh, we've gotten support again from industry alcon foundation has been a big supporter uh, we have received instrumentation as donations as well and so it has been going really well both in terms of injections in terms of laser and all that so we, you know this the the fact that we realize that there are underserved populations within the country you know it it was a, a call to action so to speak you know we realize that we need to pro- look inwards within the country we have been working all over the world in terms of provision of care but we needed to do something here and also there are other places within the country where we need uh, to to start some uh, operations as uh, on a similar level so we're looking at um you know uh, up in the bay area we are looking at hawaii uh, to try and start some similar operations as well in terms of care to understand incredible and amazing and <clears throat> you're right it wouldn't be your first thought uh philanthropy for underserved in orange county but indeed it i did it and i saw the clinic and you're providing an amazing service and congratulations on that and what a great thing you're doing congratulations on the commercial side with resolute i know you're doing great things there and what you're doing in the philanthropic role uh with Retina Global really congratulations Raj uh, that's amazing and thank you for coming on the program thank you thank you so much for your time and and the questions and uh, I'm really uh, honored so to speak to be uh, you know talking to you here on this podcast and thank you OIS as well Craig and the team uh, for asking me to join this podcast thank you thank you thank you for listening everyone we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the ois podcast be sure to listen in next week as we discuss the latest innovations in ophthalmology with experts in science medicine and industry subscribe to our itunes channel so you don't miss a thing got a story of your own to tell apply to be a guest at ois.net